Well, good morning, folks. As you know, we've been working over these last several weeks through the earliest documents that we have in our New Testament, Paul's first and second letters to the church that he founded at Thessalonica. And in the last week, we talked about uh, what Paul teaches us about what happens when we die and about the promise of the New Jerusalem. Uh, I thought it'd be a good thing today for us to just pause and take inventory of what we've learned and, and to review and reflect upon some of the concepts that Paul has been teaching us to make sure that we understand in, in a deeper way certain concepts that he's been teaching us. For example, last week, uh, as we spoke about the Easter hope, we, under, we, we, we recognize that when Paul talks about the Easter hope, he's talking about the hope that is the hope for someone called the righteous. Well, what does it mean to be righteous? How do you know if you are included among those we name as the righteous? And how do I know if my destiny is paradise? We also talked about certain words like faith and hope. Well, what does Paul mean when he speaks of faith? And, and what does he mean when he speaks of hope? And, and what's the connection, the relationship, and the difference between them? Let's start with faith. Many folks think, that what makes them Christian is that they have faith in God. Well, that's a good thing, depending upon what you mean by faith. If what you mean by faith, however, is that you affirm a set of propositions about God or propositions about Jesus as true, well, then I'd be a little concerned that you might think that being a Christian actually consists of believing the right things, of believing a long list of claims about whether God exists or Jesus was resurrected or that the Spirit moves among us or any of the long list of beliefs that churches put on their church websites under the, the heading of what we believe. Now, belief is important. Don't get me wrong. Certainly someone observing Christians would deduce from their action that they believe that certain things are true. So faith certainly has something to do with our beliefs. But faith is not primarily, and that's the important thing, it's not primarily about um, having, you know, holding to a certain set of beliefs. Faith is actually a practice it's not epistemological. Faith is instead a habit, a virtue, which, which is to say it's a habit of behaving in a particular way such that the habit becomes part of the core that makes you, you. And the habit of faith is the act of trusting that the God that, that uh, called or the God who called Abraham to leave his home in the Fertile Crescent up uh, up where we, you know, the place that we, we call Iraq nowadays, and, and to walk 800 miles to the promised land can be trusted to be true to the promises that brought Abraham to the promised land. In other words, faith is not about trying to believe that God exists against those who claim otherwise. It's, it's not about struggling to embrace particular assertions on a parish website about uh, what the church believes or assertions about God or Jesus at all. It's, it's more like the expectation I have when I come home after a long time away and I am greeted by my dog. You see, I can count on Sadie, the one you can see sleeping behind me, 
to behave in the same way every time. I can count on her greeting me at the door. I can, I can anticipate her tail wagging as though it's going to come off, her whole body shaking and shaking with joy at my arrival as, I'm, as though I'm the most important, the most delightful thing she's ever laid eyes on. Now, I don't try to believe that Sadie will welcome me. I know she will. And I know she will because she has revealed to me through our life together that that's what she does. That's who she is. That's her nature. And in the same way, Christians don't try to believe in Christian claims such as our central one that God vindicated Jesus on the cross and raised Jesus from the dead. They don't try because they don't need to try. They simply know from their life with God that what God has revealed about God's self, that God's nature is to forgive. God's nature is to reconcile. God's nature is to resurrect. Indeed, the, the nature of the entire universe is resurrection. And they know that. And they know that, uh, that, that's, that those things are true because if the, the, you know, the fact that they're true is the only thing explains the stories of our lives and, and how God seems always to make our stories end up so well. So faith is a habit. Faith is a virtue. And Paul makes an important point about faith in a story we've not read recently, a letter we've not read recently, Paul's epistle to the Romans, the church at Rome. He notes in there in chapter 4 that God didn't declare Abraham righteous. There's that word again, righteous. God didn't declare Abraham righteous based on Abraham being some great boy scout who obeyed the scout law, you know, who obeyed Torah. No, uh, Abraham wasn't righteous because Abraham obeyed the law. No, Abraham lived before God even gave the gift of Torah. Long before there was Torah, Abraham was righteous. And Paul asks, why is that true? And he concludes that Abraham's righteousness arose from Abraham's experience of God's presence in his life. God's presence in his life. That's the very definition of grace. God's presence to us, freely given presence to us. Abraham had experienced that and, and come to understand God's character. God's character, in other words, God's presence made Abraham's knowledge of God's character possible. God's presence made faith possible. Grace made faith possible, in other words. So faith is best understood as our habit of doing what Abraham did, our habit of trusting that it is God's nature never to abandon us. It is God's nature to be with us, trusting that God's nature is never to be except to be with us, as Karl Barth put it, trusting that God has determined that our sin will never determine God's relationship to us. So that's what faith looks like. But I prefer not to speak of faith, but rather of faithfulness. And the task to which Christians are to be faithful can only be construed in terms of our effort to follow Jesus's way along the way of love, by following Jesus's leadership. Um, faithfulness is our habitual action of being ultimately concerned about doing just that, about following Jesus's lead as we journey with him and learn how to walk along the way of love.
I think this should help us gain some clarity on what it means also to be righteous, that other word that is so important. In last week's sermon, I spoke about the Easter hope, and I pointed out that the presupposition of our hope is that the group that the Bible calls the righteous will participate in God's promise never to be except to be with us, which is our Easter hope. For Paul, the unrighteous face what I'm going to call annihilation at death. That is to say, they die and experience the judgment of being allowed to be consumed by worms, to be consumed by fire, as is described in the prophet Isaiah 62, the very end of the prophet's oracles. Speaking metaphorically, which is to say that their lives end at death. That's the end of the story for them. But that's not the destiny of the righteous, Paul says. The Easter hope is in God's promise of spiritual minds and spiritual bodies through which God will carry on our life with God and each other so that at death, life is changed, not ended, and such that our destiny is the life that transcends time, that transcends space, that that transcends death and is fulfilled in what we symbolically describe as the new Jerusalem. But who exactly are the righteous? Last week, I suggested that the righteous are those who do their best to respond responsibly to God's covenant of grace. That would be true for both Jews and Christians. But let's be more particular. For us Christians, we can be more specific. Righteousness for us is about our habitual practice of faithfulness, that is, To be righteous means that we are faithful followers of Jesus, habitually following his lead as he guides us in our journey along the way of love. Jesus is our Lord and our guide and our exemplar on how to walk that walk. So that's what it means to be righteous. Let's follow that line a little further and ask ourselves, what does it then mean to be Christian? Understanding what it means to be righteous helps us understand what it means to be Christian. And that's important because lots of folks confuse being Christian with being nice. But that misses the point altogether. And missing this point might have tragic implications for us. Being nice is, well, nice. But being nice does not make you righteous. And being nice does not make you Christian. And being whatever our culture calls a good person or a good American does not translate into our being recognized by God as righteous and therefore being part of that contingent who will be citizens of the New Jerusalem. There's a lot at stake here in getting this right. No, being faithful followers of Jesus, that's the key habitually following the lead as Jesus guides us in our journey along the way of love, that's what makes us Christian. In the same way, some people confuse being a member of a Christian church with being Christian, and therefore with being righteous, and therefore with the promise of citizenship in the New Jerusalem. 
But it's frankly hard to see how one can think of themselves as Christian just because you're on the membership rolls of some Christian church. If you participate in that community only two to three times per year or per decade, does that constitute actively following Jesus? Let me give you an example of belonging to a health club that I've thought about a lot. You know, you can spend some money and, and, own, and, and, and buy a membership in a health club. But if you actually never go, are you, in fact, on the journey towards the health that was your purpose in buying that membership to begin with? Being Christian is not about one's membership status in a church. Being Christian is not a status at all. It's a description of your journey. And it's a journey along which you are actively seeking to be faithful followers of Jesus, habitually following his lead as he guides us in our journey along the way of love and teaches us how to make that journey. I'm reminded once again of, uh, of, of one of my dear friends who, who's my coach who, uh, who responded to me as, as when I complained about my sore knee. He said, Craig, did you do any of those physical therapy exercises that, uh, that I prescribed for you? And I said, well, I thought about them but did you do them? No, I did not. Well, then it's hard to see how you're actually along the journey to healing, isn't it? By the same token, if you are not doing those things that constitute walking along that way of love and learning to love and to know and serve Jesus, it's hard to understand how you're on this journey that constitutes the life that is recognizably Christian. Now, it's not my place to judge whether you're on that journey. It's not anyone's place to judge whether you're on that journey. You need to assess that yourself, but don't fool yourself. Just as it's hard to say that you're on a journey towards fitness if you rarely work out at your fitness club, so too it's hard to claim you're on the journey with Jesus if you're not habitually seeking to love, know, and serve Jesus each week, each month, and each year of your life. Now, last week, I want to talk about hope now. Last week, I distinguished between the attitude of sunny optimism that calls us to, to make lemonade out of, of lemons. And I distinguished that from hope. Optimism presumes that we can't do much about our lives. And so we should maintain instead an attitude that enables us to be positive while we make the best of situations that we don't like. You know the phrase, don't worry, be happy. The problem is that optimism isn't grounded in a Christian view of the world that recognizes that the axis of the world runs through the cross and through uh, and to resurrection. And that those are the poles, cross and resurrection are the poles around which the world turns. Optimism is grounded instead in a stoic acceptance of the status quo as a given. And it tells us we can conquer our anxiety if we maintain sufficiently positive attitudes. <clears throat> and its lack of grounding in reality causes optimism all too often to breed illusions. When faced with great obstacles, an optimistic person is vulnerable to despair, vulnerable to thinking that there's nothing that can be done to make things better. 
And that despair can lead to cynicism, which is the fast track to the decision that we had better seize the bread we need for ourselves rather than sharing it with others because we can't imagine how we would survive otherwise. Now, I once won a scholarship from the Optimist Club in my hometown, but I don't want to be known as an optimist anymore. No, I'd prefer to be what Sejina relies on me to be in our family. She calls me the officer in charge of hope. But what exactly is hope? I think of hope as the habitual practice of recognizing that our world has a story, a story of which we are a part. And that story is orchestrated by our God, our God who delights in delighting us and carrying on the story of our life together. Hope knows our story ends and is fulfilled in the glorious fellowship with God and each other that is symbolized by the New Jerusalem, what Paul calls new creation, what, what the prophet Isaiah calls the new heaven and the new earth what Jesus referred to when he spoke of paradise. And so hope is the habitual practice of seeing our world and our lives as part of the story that is leading to the reality, to the fulfillment of that new Jerusalem. And that means that hope is essentially connected to imagination. Because we know the story of which we are part is headed towards the New Jerusalem, that that's how it will end, that's how it will be fulfilled. Well, we can imagine that the way things are may not be the way things have to be or should be in order for us to continue moving towards the New Jerusalem. We can imagine otherwise. Of course, if you're a person if we are a people who can imagine that the status quo is not the way things have to be, well, then we are bound to upset a lot of people who are invested in the status quo. That's why Paul was run out of town, arrested and beaten so many times. That's why we see garbage ideas today, like white replacement theory, rising up in response to the pressure of the gospel that imagines a world in which we are reconciled with each other, imagines racial reconciliation in particular. If you're a person who imagines that things can be better and who points to the New Jerusalem as our standard, as our goal, as our objective, well, friends, you're going to suffer like Paul did. You're going to find yourself seeking the right kind of trouble, as John Lewis put it. But we're okay with trouble because we have peace with God. Peace with God when we seek the right kind of trouble in God's name. And I, I'm referring here to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul's account of the essential connection between faithfulness and our hope. He wrote, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him, through Jesus, that is, and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems, our, our trouble, because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, 
and character produces hope. Hope that drives toward the New Jerusalem means we can make demands on our world that lead to our own suffering and nonetheless persevere. Hope is the habit that enables us to face suffering, that enables us to face difficulties creatively, the habit that inspires us to improvise so that our actions continue to point towards, our movement continues to go towards the reality of the New Jerusalem. And hope is what enables us to thrive and persevere in a world in which we have little power, in a world that we can't control. So faith and hope are closely connected. Faith is prior to hope. Faith has a different object. Our faith is in the trustworthiness of God's covenantal promises. We manifest our faithfulness through our habitual action of being ultimately concerned with following Jesus' lead. Hope is that habitual action of seeing ourselves as part of a story orchestrated by God, this God in whom we trust, a story which God delights in delighting us and in leading us to a world in which God will someday wipe away every tear in our eyes, in which death will be no more, a world in which there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Hope is the habitual presumption that life is a wonderful journey towards that world, that world that God is bringing towards fulfillment in which we are meant to be a part. When we encounter the Word, which is to say, when we encounter Jesus, we responsibly respond with that faithfulness that trusts and with that hope that imagines the world God is bringing to fulfillment. Together, these two habits enable us to respond to God's love by loving God and by loving each other. But love is a topic for another day. We'll come back to that. In the meantime, may your life be characterized by that faithfulness that is ultimately concerned with following Jesus' lead on this journey on which we are learning to love, know, and serve Jesus. And by that hope that is the habitual presumption that life is a wonderful journey toward that world that God is creating, that God is bringing to fulfillment, and of which you are destined to be a part. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.